Duke William surpassed them all in courage and conduct, for he nobly performed the duties of a general, staying the flight of his troops, reanimating their courage, their comrade in the greatest dangers, and more frequently calling on them to follow where he led than commanding them to advance before him. He had three horses killed under him in the battle. Thrice he remounted and did not suffer his steeds to be long unavenged. Shields, helmets, coats of mail were shivered by the furious and impatient thrust of his sword. Some he dashed to the earth with his shield, and was at all times as ready to cover and protect his friends as to deal death among his foes. So wrote Ordered Fatalis, an English chronicler and Benedictine monk in his account of the Battle of Hastings. Welcome to episode two of Explore History's podcast on the medieval knight, chivalry, and the modern world. I'm Dr. Scott McLean, and I will be leading you on this journey of exploration into medieval history and the world of the chivalric knight. In order to understand the development of the medieval knight and the concept of chivalry that the medieval knight is associated with, we need to first gain some context. And so we will begin with an overview of some of the key developments in the medieval period with a focus on England and Normandy. There's so much that we could discuss, but we will start in the early 9th century. When we look at this period, what we see is that from about the late 8th century into the early 9th century, Europe had been plagued by the Vikings, who most everyone is familiar with. Seafaring culture coming out of Scandinavia, hitting all the coastal areas of Europe and further afield. And by the early 9th century, they had had a major impact uh, on Britain and on France. And indeed, some began to settle. So our story, in many ways, begins with one very significant Viking by the name of Rollo. Rollo was a Viking of royal Norwegian ancestry, and he had been raiding the coasts of Normandy and was persuaded to make peace and become a Christian and stand guard for the Franks against the Vikings and the Bretons, uh, people of Brittany. His story may be largely fictitious, as much of what we know of him was written down much later by somebody with a vested interest in building him up. But we do know there was an agreement struck in the year 911. In this agreement, land was given to him in full ownership in order to emphasize that Norman rulers were, from the beginning, very independent. The same source also states that Rollo and his son did homage to the Frankish King Charles, and Charles's daughter, Gisela, was given in marriage to Rollo. In 924, Charles's successor, King Ralph, ceded Bayeux and Maine to Rollo. In 933, William I, known as Longsword, Rollo's son, received, quote, the land of the Bretons situated on the seacoast. He also adopted the title Count of Rouen. By 1015, Rollo's great-grandson, Richard III, was styling himself Duke of Normandy. So the picture we get from this is a region created out of necessity. The French, the Franks, had been devastated by Viking raids. And so they basically made an agreement with a Viking to say, can you keep us safe from your own people? And so we have Rollo and his descendants working with the French to protect France from the Viking threat from Scandinavia. And over time, his family gradually builds its power at the expense of those around them, including the Frankish kings. Throughout this period, we see the rulers of Normandy gradually becoming less Scandinavian. While this was always an important part of their identity, we see this in the Bayeux Tapestry, for example. As late as 1066, they're still using Viking-style ships. But they were also adopting Frankish attributes. So we get a combination 
in Normandy between two cultures, the Scandinavian Viking culture and the culture of the Franks in France. For example, as early as Rollo himself, Christianity was being adopted. It was playing a significant part in the development of Normandy. William Longsword, Rollo's son, married a Christian woman, Ludegard, and the church, which had been devastated by the Vikings, was given a new lease on life. Lands and relics were restored to the church, and a number of monasteries were re-established. However, not all was well as Viking attacks continued, some of very serious nature, and some within Normandy rejected Christianity, adding to the conflict within the region. On a number of occasions, the Frankish kings, fearful or jealous of the growing independence of the Norman counts, attempted to bring it back under their direct control. Such pressures had a lasting effect as it forced the rulers of Normandy to work hard to consolidate their power. In the later 11th century, Normandy finally broke its strong ties to Scandinavia, began developing links with the Mediterranean. For example, when Sven Forkbeard and his son Canute conquered England in the early 11th century, the Normans sided with the Anglo-Saxons. Northern France had evolved into a collection of autonomous principalities, Brittany, Normandy, Flanders, etc., that owed allegiance to the crown of France, but in reality, many of these regions were as powerful as France itself. Normandy's rulers created a well-organized state with a formidable army. Its newly emerging aristocracy was energetic and hungry to expand. Its church had had a new life breathed into it, and its monastic culture was spreading. The result was that Normandy was at the forefront of military and cultural developments in France. This meant that when Duke Robert, who reigned from 1027 to 1035, died on his way back from pilgrimage to Jerusalem in 1035, was followed by his bastard son William, the stage was set. William II, Duke of Normandy, would face opposition, but this was quickly quelled. Once his rule of Normandy was secure, it was impossible to become an actor on a larger stage. He had the might of a highly militaristic culture behind him, one built upon heavily armed knights fighting on horseback on castles and a reinvigorated Christianity. Expansion was perhaps inevitable. While the Dukes of Normandy were consolidating their power and control and then expanding further afield, we also had developments in England which were making it likely that the two may come together. While the Counts of Normandy were increasing their power and expanding their territory, events in England were also unfolding, which meant a clash may become inevitable. In the early 11th century, England was ruled by Danish kings from 1016 to 1042, first by Canute, a powerful king of Denmark, then by his two sons. Upon the death of Canute's son, Harthur Canute, old Anglo-Saxon Wessex line was restored in the person of Edward the Confessor. Edward had been living in exile in Normandy for 25 years, and during that time was naturally influenced by Norman ways. Shortly after gaining the throne of England, Edward appointed to the See of Dorchester a Norman priest whose conduct greatly shocked his Anglo-Saxon contemporaries. Another, Robert Jumet, had been placed in the See of London and in 1051 moved to Canterbury. There's evidence that in the year 1052, he received a visit from none other than Duke William of Normandy, at which time it is believed Edward named William as his successor. In 1064, Edward sent his most influential advisor, Harold Godwinson, Earl of Wessex, to Normandy to confirm the promise. The circumstances I have outlined are extremely important to later developments, as King Edward died childless and, despite his earlier promise to William, had designated Harold as his successor. We therefore have two powerful individuals, 
Harold and William as rivals for the same throne. Added to this mix is another claimant, Harold Hardrada, the Scandinavian king of Norway and Denmark, who, due to Canute's earlier reign, also believed he had a strong claim to the throne of England. Harold Hardrada gained fame early in life through a series of Saxon sieges, sea fights and land battles, waged from Poland through Russia by way of Asia Minor to Sicily. After these adventures, Harold Hardrada gained the throne of Norway and embarked upon two decades of hostilities against the Danes. After all of this, at the age of 50, Harold would please the saga tellers one more time by leaving the security of Norway on a quest for the rich jewel Canute had won 50 years earlier. To capture England would make him the most powerful ruler in the North Atlantic. Edward died on the 5th of January, 1066, and Harold Godwinson assumed the throne, immediately set about preparing for an invasion from Normandy. Harold Hardrada was ready to press his claim to the throne of England. With a fleet of about 300 ships, Harold sailed to invade England, landing near York. While making his way to York, Harold was met by the forces of Edwin, Earl of Mercia, and Morcar, Earl of Northumbria. The battle at Gate Fulford is described by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in this way. Earl Edwin and Earl Morcar assembled from their earldom as large a force as they could muster and fought against the invaders and caused heavy casualties. Many of the English hosts were killed and drowned and put to flight. The Norwegians remained the masters of the field. The Scandinavian King Harold Saga is in agreement, but in typical Saga fashion adds more color to the event. When King Harold saw that the English flank was advancing down the dike, was now opposite them. He sounded the attack and urged his men forward with his banner, Land Waster, carried in front. The Norwegian onslaught was so fierce that everything gave way before it, and a great number of the English were killed. The English army quickly broke into flight, some fleeing up the rivers and others down the river, but most of them fled into the swamp, where the dead piled up so thickly that the Norwegians could cross the swamp dry shod. Now this battle was significant on two counts. First of all, it decimated the English forces of Edwin and Morcar to the point they could not aid Harold Godwinson at the Battle of Stamford Bridge or at Hastings. Secondly, the battle weakened the forces of Harold Hardrada and still the sense of overconfidence which approved the Scandinavians' undoing. In his overconfidence, Harold left himself wide open to attack. Through a strenuous force march, Harold Godwinson led his forces north, surprised the Norwegians at Stamford Bridge. Harold Saga describes how the Norwegians were lounging about without their armor or helmets, some sources suggesting that many were still drunk or hung over from the victory celebration following the Battle of Gate Fulford. Harold Hardrati is said to have composed this poem before the battle began. We go forward into battle without armor against blue blades. Helmets glitter, my coat of mail and all our armor are at the ships. Unarmored and ill-prepared, it was only a matter of time before the Norwegians were routed and slaughtered as they fled to their ships. Harold Godwinson, King of England, had defeated the Scandinavian threat, but was now faced with a more serious threat. Where Harold had been battling the Scandinavians in the north, William of Normandy had been making preparations for an invasion. Harold received word that William of Normandy had landed at Pevensey and was ravishing the countryside and preparing for battle. Harold made a forced march with his battle-wearied army from York to London, where the weak would engage William at the Battle of Hastings. The forces met at Hastings and were evenly matched. The Normans took heavy casualties, but it was the English who suffered casualties on an overwhelming scale. 
William of Poitiers notes the pride that some of the most famous Norman fighters of the day died at Hastings, but, quote, in the carnage of the battle, the flower of the nobility and youth of England had perished. The battle established Duke William as the lawful successor to Edward the Confessor. We have a very good account of the, of the Battle of Hastings, not just in uh, text from people like Ordric Fatalis, who I quoted earlier, but also in image from the Bayeux Tapestry. We can see how the battle unfolded. We get a very real sense of what it was like. The Anglo-Saxons arriving, they got off their horses and made a shield wall at the top of the slope um, where the town of Battle now sits today. The Normans coming from the coast from uh, Hastings, uh, coming inland knowing that they'd be trapped if they didn't move inland, met the Saxons. They had quite a chore against them. They had to come uphill. They had infantry, maybe about 5,000 men, and about 2,000 knights on horseback. Charge after charge, as you can imagine, day long. Charge after charge, going up against the Saxon shield wall. The Saxons fighting primarily with uh, long-handled axes, which was the weapon of choice by the Anglo-Saxons. The Normans, they're using bow and arrow, they're using javelins or spears, and they're coming up and charging against that shield wall. Time and time again, they meet the shield wall, but they're unable to break through. Eventually, they come to the shield wall and they make it look like they're fleeing away from it. And some of the Anglo-Saxons break from the wall and they rush after them. The Normans then turn their horses and annihilate them. They would do this three times. And in the end, it broke the ranks of the Anglo-Saxons. Eventually, really perhaps the turning point, King Harold Godmanson himself, as we see in the Bayeux Tapestry, if it's true, takes an arrow to the eye and he falls on the battlefield. And after that, as is described, the flower of the nobility of, this, of the Saxons dies on the battlefield. Once they break and run, the Normans rush after them on horse and cutting them down as they go. And so massive losses on the part of the Anglo-Saxons, which left something of a power vacuum. So the death of King Harold and his brothers at Hastings removed all the country's natural leaders. And this meant that William the Conqueror had no strong rival with which to contend. The Normans took Dover. They moved on to receive the submission of Canterbury. Severe illness plagued the Norman army, but no English force came to challenge them. Local communities in the southeast began submitting to William as he made his way to London, where he was crowned king at Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day, 1066. During the first five years of his reign, William had two major issues to resolve. Could he contain sporadic outbreaks of opposition and revolt and impose his authority over the entire kingdom? Secondly, could he weld together Norman and English elements in his court, in the church, and administration. In 1067 to 1070, William was faced with a series of local challenges at Exeter, Dover, in the Midlands, and along the western frontier. Each outbreak was, from the English point of view, a refusal to accept Norman rule. From the Norman point of view, a rebellion against a lawful king. By 1069, the southeast was secure, and the basis for firm control was established in the southwest and the Midlands. First steps to stabilize the border between Wales and England was also underway. The problem area was the north. In Northumbria, government through local magnates failed. The first Norman administrator appointed in the north was slaughtered in Durham by an English force. 
In 1069, York erupted in violence. The same year, a large Danish force landed in the Humber River and, with English dissidents, took York. First months of the year 1070, William moved on York, destroying all means of livelihood throughout Yorkshire. William and the Normans in general were successful because of their depth of defense, endurance, and adaptability, and the level of savagery they demonstrated they were willing to use on occasion. By 1071, much of the military problem had been resolved. There was still a political problem. Could William weld together the Norman Anglo-Saxon elements of his kingdom? In the early part of his reign, William envisaged a scenario which would see wealthy Englishmen work with him. William clearly had some supporters from amongst the English nobility. Some English of great standing supported William, but more often than not, they rose in rebellion when the occasion presented itself. By 1075, the majority of prominent English magnates were no longer playing a role politically. Many found refuge in Scotland. Doomsday Book provides evidence in abundance that many men of substance were reduced to holdings as tenants of Norman lords on parts of what had been once their own estates. After the Battle of Hastings, lands belonging to English taking part were declared forfeit and divided up amongst William's followers. Each rebellion which was put down produced further lands to be divided. Many of William's followers, many directly related to him, had invested heavily in the conquest, providing service and ships. They therefore deserved to be rewarded, or handsomely rewarded with about 20% of England's wealth. William kept about 20% for himself and held manors in most English shires. Clearly it was Anglo-Saxon nobility that lost out after Hastings, whether initially after fighting against William or over a period of years as they saw their political and economic fortunes disappear as the Normans and Norman culture became entrenched. So what we have here then in 1066 was a struggle for the throne of England, a struggle which involved claimants from Anglo-Saxon England, French Normandy and Scandinavia. Yet the date 1066 represents much more as it was in this year that the British Isles were invaded by a new culture, a people decidedly different from the Anglo-Saxons, the Scots, the Welsh, and the Irish, which had inhabited the Isles for centuries. We therefore see the British Isles turning down a new road in 1066, one which would witness the introduction of the French language and culture, of feudalism and all it entailed, new ideas and methods of church organization, castles and methods of warfare into the Isles, all at the expense of the existing Anglo-Saxon and Celtic peoples. And further, with the Norman conquest, we enter into a new era which saw England directly involved in European affairs, as the future kings of England held lands in both Britain and on the continent, a fact which influenced much of the political history of England after 1066.